to the Integral Stage Author Series. I'm Layman Pascal in Thunder Bay, Ontario, and today we're talking with Black Belt Healer and host of NourishingDestiny.com, Lonnie Jarrett. He's put together a book that opens space for the future of integral health work by reframing and converging with traditional Chinese medicine. Half integral philosophy, half advanced folk medicine textbook, and half spiritual guidebook, this is a jam-packed monster of a text, which I found to be admirably nuanced and almost preposterously comprehensive. Hi, Lonnie. <laughs> and then I'm, I'm, it's really an honor to be here. As I said, uh, when I signed on, it's great to meet you after all these years, and I look forward to the conversation. And with your initial comments, I'm glad that you had a positive. Very few people have seen this, so I'll be really interested to see how the integral community responds to it especially. Yeah, I had a very strong positive reaction to it. Maybe you could tell us... Um, you know, where does the idea come from? What's your, what was your notion of what this book should be? And also, where are people going to be able to get their hands on it? Yeah, sure. Well, in terms of where they can get their hands on it, you know, I'm publishing the book myself through Spirit Path Press. If they just go to LonnieJarrett.com or SpiritPathPress.com, the book is there. It's called Deepening Perspectives on Chinese Medicine. And, you know, by way of a little background, um, my mother had an extensive library when I was a kid. I came of age in the 60s and early to mid 70s. And when I was 13, I discovered all the translations of the philosophical texts of China. My best friend, so, so Confucius and Lao Tzu and Shuang Tzu and Han Fei Tzu and Sun Tzu, the art of war and the I Ching. And I just got lost in these texts, probably through a connection to the Beatles, because I knew they, George Harrison played sitar and revolver, and, and that was it. So I became very interested in that. My best friend was Chinese, and we used to go into Chinatown on Sundays to watch Kung Fu movies. And I took up martial arts very young, beginning in Judo when I was 10, and then going on to get a fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo. I went into psychology and neuroscience, got a master's degree in neuroscience and left the doctoral program of neurobiology at the University of Michigan to go into Chinese medicine and early on encountered Ken Wilber's book on um, the holographic paradigm. And I read that and it just, I, ha I had a, like uh, something like exploded in my mind where you know, I think a lot of us in the 60s rejected the materialism and the superficiality of the West by looking to Eastern Dharma. And I was very moved by Chinese philosophy and medicine and martial arts because it provided a depth I wasn't finding in my own culture. And I think what Ken's book did is brought me back and really you know, realize there is depth in our culture too. I can't flat out reject it. And I've spent the last 40 years really synthesizing and bringing the, you know, if you want to say left brain, right brain, east and west together to, to I think, a, not just a synthesis, but some, something that really transcends, go, goes, goes beyond even a synthesis to the emergence of a new kind of medicine, which I will call integral medicine, and which I think is really just incipient. I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't make the comment integral medicine exists. First of all, there are so few of us at an integral stage. And I think I never take for granted that I'm there because there are always nuances and so many aspects 
and lines of development and, and different ways of looking at things. But in this book, you know, which is coming out to about 950 book pages now, as you say, I think it's pretty comprehensive. And um, beyond that, I've done 90,000 clinical sessions with people. So every, nothing I'm writing about is abstract to me. It's all verified in the treatment room in real time, working with human beings, putting in a needle, taking their pulses and seeing what the really how individuals develop and how, how does that development in, how can we look at it and understand it from a four quadrant eight zone point of view, for instance? And what, that's what I've tried to accomplish in this book. Fantastic. I think it's a great attempt. And I think that the, you know, the healing arts and the higher philosophy really need to enrich each other. I grew up among West Coast health practitioners. So I've got a pretty strong sense of probably not, uh, not through my own work on it, but just as the background society of what's going on with people. And it's very much, it's very integral. You find integral and integrative on health clinics all over the place because so many of those practitioners know firsthand that you have to combine multiple modalities in order to get anything done. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things you mentioned in the book, though, that goes along with this is that there's already something like a metasystemic approach within traditional Chinese medicine. Yes. And, you know, my personal experience of certainly older traditional Chinese medicine practitioners is that seems to be the case. Mm -hmm. what's your, you know, what's your argument for that? Why would you think that it already has that built in? Well, this is interesting. And it's something I've really thought a lot about. When I first got into Chinese medicine, you know, I was making, as we all were, the declaration, it's holistic, it's holistic, it's holistic. And as I went more deeper into it, I had to question, well, is the holism in Chinese medicine or is the holism in us and we're, and we're, and we're the ones making it holistic? And there's some evidence for that in terms of diagrams that emerged relative to the relationships that were outlined in Chinese texts 500 BC but they were never drawn until 1970s. So I think there's a little bit of both. Now we can call Chinese, med Chinese medicine is actually holistic and it is integral, but I think we're bringing a lot of the holism and integrality to it. The foundation of holistic thought is certainly in Chinese medicine. And you can see that for instance, you can see that in Leibniz's formulation of integral calculus and his theory of monadology, the first explicit holistic theory in the West, which he derived after reading the I Ching with Jesuit scholars. And if you look at binary math, which he formulated, that's the I Ching is binary math. You have solid lines, broken lines, or a broken line turning into a solid line, or a solid line turning into a broken line. And so East and West have been coming together in this way, I think is a natural evolutionary process um, cognitively and in humanity and in consciousness for actually thousands of years. And we can say that Chinese medicine was born in magic, magical relationships. It's, we can call it um, predicate identity so predicate identity as a form of consciousness 
that children have when they're at a developmental age where the only metaphors they can make are based on shape and color. So I remember my daughter when she was three, laughing in the driveway at night and pointing. And I said, what Angelic? And she pointed to the crescent moon and she said, daddy, it's a banana moon. <laughs> so she made a metaphor based on shape. You know, a three, four-year-old can't make a metaphor like Dylan Thomas or Bob Dylan or Shakespeare would make, but based on color and based on shape or based on size. So if you look at Chinese medicine, you get formulations like walnuts are bipartite and have convolutions. The brain is bipartite and have convolutions and the kidneys are bipartite. So walnuts stimulate the kidneys and strengthen the brain. And I think we had magical thinking like that for thousands of years until we got to Confucianism, amber meme Confucianism, and the leading edge there would have been um, mythic rational. Because you look at the Chinese texts written in the Han Dynasty 300 to 500 BC, and there isn't much magic in them. They're really mythic, rational textbooks. And what they're doing is they're weeding out all the nonsense correlative thought that's really based on superstition and myth. And they're looking up what does actually integrate into a rational, functional paradigm and holds up according to clinical experience. And they're codifying that. The, uh, that's the, the area of concern for the Western scientifically schooled thinker is, mm -hmm. has there been a verification weeding out process? Because it seems very dangerous to make health determinations based on metaphors. But if those metaphors just describe functional processes that we've seen work and it's a way of describing it, that should be very available to the rational thinker as sure. long as there's some process of checking to see what's actually functioning rather than merely extrapolating from our metaphoric imagination. Well, functioning is the key word here. So if you look at what are the qualifications of science, well, empirical observation, um, comparing observations to an agreed upon standard of assessment, now, and repeatability and falsifiability and Chinese medicine and science meet all those claims. The difference is, whereas Western science compares observations to a quantifiable standard of reference, centimeters, grams, and seconds, the CGS system, Chinese medicine is, and science are comparing all observations relative to qualitative standards of reference but they're still standards of reference. So Western medicine reaches its theoretical peak in the emergency room. It's a materialistic science of the body. And thank God we have that. If you're in a car crash, shot by a gun, stabbed by a knife, or you contract Ebola or COVID or flesh-eating bacteria, what they can do is absolutely amazing. If there's a car crash in front of my office, it's gonna do no good to carry the people up to my acupuncture clinic. I can administer last rites, that would be about it. But there are two other aspects of healthcare and these are prevention. And Western medicine does virtually no prevention. The most preventive thing Western medicine does is toothbrushing and flossing. And you could make an argument 
argument for the best of the vaccines, vaccinating against polio, for instance. So that is truly preventive. But generally, the further you get away from critical care applications, the more iatrogenic illness there is, the more the medical or the surgical or the pharmaceutical intervention causes unwanted side effects. Chinese medicine is doing prevention brilliantly and it's doing long-term management of subtle conditions um, that have the po genetic potential to manifest and helping a person make lifestyle changes, reframing how they think, what they believe, how they behave and how they act in a way that can mitigate the genetic tendencies to manifest certain important potentials. So the two medicines complement each other really nicely. Now the huge difference between them getting to your original point is that because Chinese medicine is qualitative, it's inherently synthetic. And the Chinese never denied the physical body. They just didn't have the means, they didn't have electron microscopes and PET scans and CAT scans and MRIs. They didn't have the capacity to flush out the physical structure of the body in great detail, but they did look in the eyes and look at the tongue and look at the face and look at the hands and look at the stool and look at the urine and look at the body conformation. And most importantly, the crown jewel of physical diagnosis is pulse diagnosis. I use a pulse diagnosis system that has 57 places to put my finger on the radial artery, acknowledges nine different depths and a hundred different qualities that act distributively. So that gives us access to a, a very, very deep listening into the four quadrants and eight zones really as they manifest in an individual in any moment. And, and to understand the qualitative confluence of all the various influences that are impacting the self in the moment and giving rise to the self and, and the self's responses. And One of the things um, I immediately thought about in reading this book was the role that biology and organic systems could play in fleshing out a theory of types. Mm -hmm. Arguably within the integral model, the types is the least developed major aspect, uh, mostly because we only inherit a few. You know, we have astrology and we have the Enneagram and we have Myers-Briggs and you know, they all somewhat work, but they leave a lot to be desired. But in physical medicine, we understand there's blood types, there's types of gut bacteria. So there may be a way of anchoring typology at a really basic level and building up from there. And it seems like Chinese medicine might be able to play a role in, you know, fleshing out the biological underpinnings of human typology. Well, well, Chinese medicine in terms of types is the most significantly evolved typing system that exists that, that I'm aware of. Of course, you've also got Ayurveda in terms of the, um, the doshas, but, and you've got the American Ind Indian medicine wheel too, they, they, in, in terms of directions of the medicine wheel, but they just didn't have a literary tradition. The thing about Chinese medicine is the first books were written 500 to 300 BC, and we literally have to this day commentaries 
commentaries on those texts through, through for 2,500 years, and you have a running list of commentators, not only discussing the text, but discussing previous commentators. And you can actually see people arguing with each other over 2,500 years, interpret, and now this has gone in, in it, you know, the Jesuits brought Chinese medicine back, back to Europe in the mid 1600s. And acupuncture has been practiced in Europe since the mid 1600s. Benjamin Franklin's grandson translated the French texts on acupuncture into English. And so you've got this, this um, continued tradition. Now, the types, a given type colors, it qualifies all of the zones and all of the quadrants. So we've already flushed this all out in Chinese medicine. What, what Western medicine can do is it can extend the physical typing that we recognize in Chinese medicine to parts of the brain and to, to particularly to microstructures the Chinese never would have been aware of. But when I was going, I was in the integra in integrative neurobiology program at the University of Michigan um, in the PhD program there. And what I proposed for my PhD thesis was mapping out points on the back the Chinese had assigned to the different organ systems. So you have a point on the back for the bladder, for the lungs, for the colon, for the large intestine, for the stomach, the spleen. And I, and I noted that they were all were neurologically correct, that 500 BC, the Chinese had laid out points that actually are directly over all the afferent and efferent nerves going to those organs. And I proposed mapping, mapping all those terminations on the brain using the newly emergent technologies like radioimmunoassay and CAT scans and and whatnot to qualitatively map out the parts of the brain and the parts of the nervous system correlated with the five elements. And I gave a beautiful presentation to the heads of the medical school and the entire medical staff to a packed room that broke, this was in 1982, broke out into pandemonium. And when the room cleared, I was taken aside and I was basically told if you take your preliminary examinations, we don't care what you put on the paper, we're gonna fail you. We're giving you a master's degree and we want you to leave. You're not using a doctorate from the University of Michigan to promote witchcraft. Because of course, these are all mental rational materialists and the only way they could relate to Chinese medicine was to its magical components and not to understand they didn't understand a thing about any of the ways we talk about it, right? But what's interesting now is one of the heads of anesthesiology there is the editor of, and, and the head of the Society for Acupuncture Research. Now, <laughs> the, the, things have changed a lot. And You've been a, vindicated. <laughs> come a long way, yeah. Things have come a long way in 40 years and people are actually doing those kinds of research now. So the thing is, because Chinese medicine is inherently synthetic, any observation can be brought into the system. But because West upper right quadrant materialism significantly represses interior, interiority, the only way 
Western science can deal with integral relationships is, is with the hyphen. So you just get psychoneuroimmunology. Like what a revelation that the mind has something to do with the human immune system and with the nervous system. And what they're gonna have to do is create a word with like 1500 or 15,000 or 15 million hyphens to finally have an integral medicine. Every, I read the news, I read the science headlines every day about what papers have been released and what medical studies. And every day of the week, they're releasing papers declaring correlations between different aspects of physiology, but they have no meta view in which to integrate them. But from a Chinese point of view, we're always going like this and going, well, there's the line in the Neqing that says that's true. Of course, the gut is related to the brain. The, the Chinese declared 500 BC that the spirit associated with digestion is thought. That thought is the digestive aspect of the mind. So Chinese, the language of Chinese physiology is always a language of gross, subtle, and causal. It's always a language of the, the body, the mind, the ego, the soul, the conscience, the spirit. Well, let's talk a little bit about life force. It's an interesting concept because people take it in different ways. Yeah. Right? For some people, it's an actual additional subtle energy of some kind. For other people, it's a way of talking about bioelectromagnetism in the gross body. And for other people, it's at best a metaphor to describe the operating of the system when the system's operating well. Mm -hmm. uh, I was interested in this book in terms of how much you think an, a novelty and evolutionary model of what life is can benefit traditional Chinese medicine, which might traditionally have been associated with a circular, recursive, or you know, a holding steady model of what life is trying to do? Well, of course, yeah. I mean, that's the main point I make in my book, right? Is that the, the, the Chinese, so Chinese medicine arose with a lunar calendar and a circular view of time, right? The painted ponies go round and round. We're all riding on a carousel of time to every season, turn, turn, turn. So, so it was born at this magic stage of development in a circular view of time. And that we can, we can look at that as the Enso, you know, the Japanese circle painting. And we can look at that as the first stage of development, the first archetype that Eric Neumann talks about in terms of the pleroma, the, the consciousness completely embedded and one with matter. Um, but then we arrive at, at patriarchy and the institution of linear time. And of course we put the circle together with the straight line and we get the spiral. And I make, and so Chinese medicine comes in, explodes in the West during the 1960s and early 70s. And so what's interesting is we have these first photographs coming back from space of this little blue world floating in an infinite abyss of points of light. And this is when I think we really get the dawning of holistic integral awareness. On my 13th birthday, I went into Greenwich Village to see the original production of the Broadway play Hair. And it was the first Earth Day, April 22nd, 1970. And, I, and there were flags of this little green blue ball floating everywhere. 
And there was this real dawn, and you know, the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, think globally, act locally. There was this real explosion of um, holistic awareness in the sense of being one world. I mean, the foundations for this had been laid philosophically earlier. And Aurobindo in what, 1917 wrote his book, The Ideal of Human Unity. But it's really exploding into, into popular consciousness at that time. But if we look, but it so Chinese medicine explodes then with, you know, the Beatles and Ravi Shankar and Trungpa and the, the Western, the Eastern Dharma coming to the West, Baba Ram Das and this, this whole movement, it really explodes into pluralistic consciousness, right? It's coming in in new age healing, pluralistic consciousness, the dawning of holistic awareness and because it's coming through green values, it's very much be here now, don't judge, all points of view are equal, just chill. You have your truth, I have my truth, nobody knows the truth. It's all good, man. So it, it comes into this culture that's sort of abandoning hierarchy, seeing, abstracting from Chinese medicine the holism but repressing the Confucian patriarchal model that's very deep at the root of it. And what it comes to is Chinese medicine becomes very much about the orange sort of symptomatic treatment. We're gonna use needles and we're gonna use herbs instead of drugs and surgery. And it becomes very good about helping people feel good about where they're already at, which is, at that time, it's okay, right? We're at a point in history where people are starting to learn to introspect and be okay with their emotions and accept themselves. But now we've been through 50 years of LSD and hot tubs at Eslian and, and chocolate mud packs and ayahuasca ceremonies and group sex and Shirley MacLaine having past life regressions when her acupuncturist gives her a gold needle in between her eyes. And what I'm really what I'm really saying here, so Chinese medicine makes makes acupuncture very much about the flow of qi. Now qi is really just code for the capacity to do work. So qi is a functional metaphor. The life force also, so chi like the life force, we can take a four quadrant eight zone view on it. So to say that chi is this or that could be an upper right view if you're measuring it, but it also, chi is just the capacity to do work. It's just the functional flow of the capacity to do work. So if I look at someone and their belly is hanging over their pants, it's not being held in place. So we say they have weak stomach chi. We know chi exists because things are held in place, they're moving, they're transforming, they're warm, and they're developing. So chi is really a functional construct, but of course it has physical manifestations. And if we say, what is the physical manifestation? In the end, we have to come down to chi is everything and she is also nothing. 
So what I'm looking at in my book is what if we just look at medicine from a developmental perspective and instead of defining homeostasis as just a steady state, realize that an intricate part of that steady state is human development. And that the point of medicine, Chinese medicine, medicine itself, isn't just to help a person feel good about where they are, but to help them transcend where they are, transcend and include where they are, and to catalyze the emergence of a deeper and more highly integrated human being. And what I've, I feel I've really accomplished with this book is to lay the philosophical foundation for that. And I have other students and colleagues that I'm mentoring and in discussion with who will be writing the books that explicitly lay, lay this out clinically. So my first book, Nourishing Destiny, was really on the philosophical basis of Chinese medicine rooted in Taoism and in a in a, a worldview of transformation and an inner soul development related to what we could call maybe integral self-actualization. My second book was how do I realize all that in the clinic? My third book is laying the philosophical foundation for the emergence of integral medicine and future books will have to be how do we really realize this clinically? One thing I'm fond of saying, which is, to be honest, it's paraphrasing Andrew Cohen, but, you know, everyone wants to get better, but nobody wants to change. And what I notice is that conservative people go to doctors so they can take drugs and surgery and feel better without having to change. And liberal people come to acupuncturists, homeopaths, psychics, and shamans so they can feel better without having to change. And Really what I'm looking at is how through the therapeutic relationship, how do we, under, the Bodhisattva vow has in it a very powerful statement from Mahayana Buddhism. And that statement is, may I be the doctor and the medicine? And my whole book is really about what does it take not just to be the doctor, but to be the medicine and I think, you know, in, integral develop, that's integral development, facing our shadow. You know, my whole, my whole experience is, it's my fundamental integrity to the medicine, to actually being the medicine, and my path in learning, what does it take to be the medicine that has in me developed whatever degree of humility or compassion I have to be able to catalyze the emergence of those virtues in other people and to help them develop. If I'm treating you for sciatica, I don't ever have had to have sciatica to treat you effectively. I'm very effective in treating infertility in women and I've never given birth. So on the gross level, when it comes to physical practice of medicine, there's no impetus that the practitioner has to have any specific integrity. But if we're talking about integral medicine, if we're talking about the development of the human mind, consciousness, the soul, then this phrase, may I be the doctor and the medicine really is something we have to contemplate. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I'll say, because I don't know if I answered your question, when it comes to the life force, all this was context, you know? <laughs> I mean, 
I think we have to understand, we can understand the life force as having correlates through all the quadrants and zones. But for me, a very important aspect, uh, perhaps the most important aspect of integral is that integral is, as we know, a mind-blowing intellectual, mental, rational construct that can actually free the mind through the creation of this map and, and empower the capacity to embrace complexity. And I just think it's so important that, that that degree of intellectual cognition and development and these values, that we realize that still at the heart of all things and at the heart of our own knowing, there's this infinite mystery which is just beyond the mind and beyond our capacity to map. We can keep mapping it, but at the center of that map, there is always this infinite mystery. And so when we discuss what is the life force, well, in my book, I'm equating the life force with eros, with consciousness, with the authentic self, with spirit. I think these are all terms we use for it. What's the practical significance of infinite mystery for healing processes? I think it, firstly, I think it has to do with at the heart of the therapeutic relationship is the rat, a radical brace of a context with no inherent sense of limitation. Now, on the one hand, if a patient comes to me with cancer, that is well treated by radiation and chemotherapy, I always beg the person to do both. And I do get people who come to me and they think, you know, they say, I need to heal. I'm not going to do radiation. I'm not going to do chemo. I'm going to heal this through prayer and thought. And I need you to absolutely believe. And if you don't absolutely believe I can do this, then I can't work with you. Everyone who's ever come to me and with that perspective, they're all dead. And most of the people who we did an integral approach where they're getting radiation chemo, we're using acupuncture and herbs to treat, to help mitigate the negative effects on the body and to deal with the symptoms that arise and to treat the underlying condition and keep the person healthfully evolving and healthfully framing their experience in relationship to what they're going through. Most of those people are alive. And, and so I think it's just, I think this is all part of a mature integral medicine. The concept of integrity is clearly central to your thinking on these subjects. Mm -hmm. What does that word mean to you? What is integrity? Well, I, th I think integrity is very much an attribute that I would see coming into the foreground in second tier. So we have to talk about that. I think there are a few things to say about that because, you know, a healer in an indigenous tribe in Africa that is performing a clitorectomy on a 12-year-old girl is having integrity to their stage of development. Somebody at that stage of development in a tribe that believes eating the flesh of an albino 
or that the way you cure AIDS is by having sex with a virgin is not out of integrity to their stage of development. So of course, every stage, every stage of development has its own integrity. So when we get to the integral stage of development, I think what we're talking about is having, having it, I understand integral to be a place developmentally of, of self-actualization of the whole self. And at that stage of development, the ego ceasing to become the central identification and most dominant force within the self-structure and at least taking one knee to be relegated to its appropriate place within the self-structure. And that we're making, this, we're making the self a central creation. So when we look at orange, we can say there's a stage of self-actualization, but that stage of self-actualization has to do more with business success and having a family and worldly success. And when we get to postmodernism and pluralism, we, we can deconstruct that to start including in a big way, sort of the interior collective. But that interior collective is viewed ahierarchically so that every voice in our head sort of has equal weight. So the conscience has its point of view and the soul has its point of view and the spirit has its point of view and the ego and the superego. And it really comes down. And at that level, because there's no hierarchy, there's sort of this notion of if I have an inclination and I don't act on it, I'm repressing and that's unhealthy. So I have to live my truth and you live your truth and I won't judge you and you won't judge me regardless of the consequences of anything we do. And so you, you get these myths at the time, like karma-free sex, right? Was, was this big ideal in the 60s and 70s, love the one you're with, karma-free sex. And we found out by uh, mid-80s that wasn't true, right? In a, in a, in a sort of devastating way. And so... When we come up to integral, I think we integrity really takes the forefront of integrating all the different aspects of ourself, but now reinstituting a post post postmodern being able to reinstitute our relationship to the interior collective in a way that we understand where different impulses and motives are coming from, and we can make hierarchical distinctions and in, in relationship to them. So now I say, you know, actually I'm thirsty, I need to get a drink. Well, I'm not repressing that. that that's survival. That's a first chakra impulse. But there are other first chakra impulses I have that are like, you know, when somebody cuts me off in a car and the first thing I wanna do is like pull out a rocket launcher. <laughs> I, so I don't have to act on that but I'm aware of the impulse and I have more of a objective relationship to all these voices in my head and where they're coming from and which ones I should act on and which ones need to be acted on and which ones I don't need to act on because they're, they're just you know based on infantile impulse. I just had a discussion with one of my patients and she was saying, well, I'm engaged and I'm getting married to a man, 
but I'm, um, you know, I consider myself gender fluid and I'm attracted to women and I, I don't know how I'll have those needs met. And I said, well, you know, you just have a mature conversation with your husband and whatever you, as long as you're not lying and everything's out in the open, it's fine with me. And I said, but there's a deeper point here. And she said, what's that? And I said, well, you know, there's a popular formation, which is really a postmodern formation in consciousness of nobody can meet all of our needs. And I said, but the corollary to that is, should anybody have all their needs met? Does anyone need to have all their needs met? And what's the developmental age of a person who insists on having all of their needs met? So I understand integral as both the place that we actually self-author. We take full responsibility for self-authoring and we complete the identity project in terms of the ego, place the ego in its appropriate relationship to the interior collective so that it's, it's, no longer dominating. And this is a tall order. It's a tall order. But I also understand the upper edges of integral at the place where we actually start seeing through the self that we've self-authored and realizing there's so much more. So I see the upper edges of integral as the transcendence into the transpersonal stages of development and the an actual as a seeing through the identity project in that talking head song you know this is not my house this is not my wife these are not my kids oh my god what have i done so there's this sort of we've completed the identity project but i think the upper edges of integral is actually where we start to entertain authentic the capacity for authentic intersubjectivity that's self-consciously generated, not just happening spontaneously, but, but that we take responsibility for. And where we start getting interested in where, where the subtle dimension of the self at least starts to become more confluent with the stage of development that we're at. Consciously, to, consciously confluent. I've got two questions around the relationship between Chinese medicine and stages. Yeah. Uh, one is, you know, you mentioned this idea of the person trying to cure AIDS by having sex with a virgin. Right. And that, that person could be in integrity to their stage and their culture. Yeah. From a Chinese medicine point of view, are they in, in integrity with their body? you know, in that world space, or is something going wrong? Because there's many different ways that that stage could show up. Yeah. And some of them might be more or less healthy. And related to that is the question of, are there characteristic imbalances that tend to accompany the different developmental stages? Well, yes, yes, there are. And I go over these at length in the book, and I don't think we have time to totally elaborate them. But the answer to your question is, you know, the, the person, the, the Aztec who's carving out the virgin's heart on top of the pyramid from the perspective of Chinese medicine is going to be in integrity from a Chinese medicine perspective for any practitioner who's at the same stage of development. Mm. 
<laughs> but but if you're even half a stage of development beyond it, it's gonna by the time so that's that's pure magic. And if by the time you get to magic mythic, you're gonna start to have concerns. And by the time you're at mythic, that's you're just gonna want to kill all those people doing and put their heads on stakes, right? Because you're at you're at a complete and part of that's gonna be a, a repression of that dimension of your own self, right? So you're not interested in, you're not carving virgin's heart out anymore. Now you're going on holy wars. So we have a concept in Chinese medicine called possession. Now this is a real medical diagnostic category. It's main, the main way you diagnose it is the failure of your patient to make eye contact. Their eyes are just dark like a shark. They're a black hole that no light escapes from. The way we see life force, the way we diagnose spirit is the brightness coming through the eyes, acuity of hearing, acuity of smell, acuity of taste. But I can't know anything about that without interacting with you, but I can just look at a person's eyes and see the light coming through the eyes. And in a person who's possessed, they're dark. At a magical stage of development in the medicine, the person is possessed by spirits. Everything has a spirit and some spirit got into the person. In other words, it's other. At a mythic stage of development, it's not demons and gods. When by the time you get to real ambermine, there's, there's one God and there's one devil. So it's no longer, the spirit of a plant or the spirit of a bush or the spirit of a mountain or an ancestral spirit, it's the devil. And the time you get to a rational stage of development, it's just neurochemicals. And the stage you get to postmodern stage of development, possession is just a social construct. So you look at Ivan Illich or Thomas Zaz, the myth of mental illness, or you look at Michel Foucault, completely deconstructing mental illness and um, saying, you know, what's healthy and what is ill is, is just um, a social contract based on power relations. And I think by the time we get to an integral stage of development, where we're really integral, we realize there is no other. I understand integral to minimally be based on at least the cognitive realization of non-duality. And then at that stage, at least cognitively, I mean, hopefully the person has some real spiritual experience around this, but even if they don't cognitively, we recognize that there is no other. And then we understand possession to be a separation from self. And, uh, and at this stage, I would just say a very extreme clouded over form of um, ego and severe repression. Poss and possibly we'd understand it in its most severe forms in terms of gross, gross physical distortions down at the developmental level of probably the first two chakras, psychosis, autism, borderline conditions. There's a lot of spirituality in this book and there's a lot of discussion of meditation. Mm -hmm. And you use the, uh, uh, you know, a number of Andrew Cohen style phrasings about mm -hmm non-relationship as a meditation instruction mm -hmm. that describes a particular mode of meditation right mm -hmm. a sort of eternally present witnessing <laughs> uh, now 
there's other things that people mean by meditation. Like that's not necessarily a good description of transcendental meditation or of sustained focus meditations. Right. I think what you're saying about meditation in the book applies broadly to all these modes of meditation, or is it specifically about the function that's evoked in that non-relational state? The way, so I learned TM when I was in ninth grade. So I, I think that's around the age of 13. 14, somewhere there. So 1972, I, I took a TM course. And so I have a long history with meditation. And when I met Andrew and I meditated the first time with Andrew, literally within 10 seconds of closing my eyes, an atom bomb went off behind my eyes. And I saw the fruit of all the, everything I'd ever read and thought and all the practice I'd ever done in a moment. Um, I understand there'd be two broad categories of meditation. Meditation with seed and meditation without seed. Seeded meditation runs from the simplest focus on your breath, or even I would consider Vipassana seeded meditation, which is watch thoughts, feelings, emotions, sensations arise with the breath and just fall away. So you can see their constructed nature, but you're still doing something. Staring at a candle, staring at a spot on the wall, counting one to 10 over and over. These are very simple seated meditations. I once sat with Yeshi, Yeshi Dandan, who is the Dalai Lama's physician. This was in the lobby of the Shoreham Hotel in 1981. And we were having tea with Robert Thurman and a couple other acupuncturists at the end of a conference and Lena Horn and Bill Cosby walked by and said hello to us, which was at the time cool, less, half less cool now. <laughs> and Yeshi Dandan was describing how they learn medicine. The medicine Buddha has eight arms. The first arm has a hand, the hand has five fingers. On the first finger, there's a ring. The ring has 50 facets. In the first facet, there's a bureau. The bureau has 12 draws. In the first draw, there's a leaf. The leaf has five prongs. The first prong is compassion. That's, that all is also a form of seated meditation. It, 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 I forget, but it, it like took days for them to sit and they would go through this over and over again. So, I understand seated meditation to be good for beginners, good for learning things, and probably good for developing certain cities, psychic capacities, um, opening up the flow of prana or chi or life force, developing the kind of capacities that Ken used to talk about in his psychic stage of development, which he put just beyond integral and the kind of capacities that Sri Aurobindo and Patanjali's and Louis Ming in the Taoist canon all talk about as intermediary points that most people get lost in and mistake for final enlightenment. Just, just stations on the path that people get intrigued about and lost in. So that could be med seated meditation. And what Andrew taught is unseated meditation. And I think really there's only one variety of this. There are 10,000 kinds of 
the seated meditation. But unseated meditation, sit still, don't move, let go, have no relationship. I don't think it's that different from Zen or Dzogchen meditation. Just no, go, you go to zero. And I think there's something inherently different about the absolute context than all the seated meditations where there is relative context. Now, I would not go to war over any of this. I mean, I haven't spent, you know, I, I spent thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of hours. I'm, I'm sure I'm up to six, 7,000 hours doing the unseated meditation. Uh, many people in that community did 10,000 plus hours or twice that. Doing So we all know that have, so this brings a certain, so all spiritual practice makes more sense once one has woken up than it does before one has woken up. And I think it's much more healthy to do practice in the context of strengthening identification with the more subtle and very subtle aspects of ourselves than it is in actually waking us up to any of it. But none of it is proof of a stage of development and all of it, all this practice I think has the potential to be anti-evolutionary outside of the context of the virtues of, you know, humility and compassion and, and leaving room for what we don't know, this sort of mystery and being in a community of people where we're really trying to inquire and you know, develop together and inquire into these things together. And look, as far as any of us have gotten, I don't think it's all that far. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we look at this, look, I mean, I can, my, book, I, my books, I think, prove that I have a very cognitive, highly developed cognitive understanding of what I'm talking about. And I, I will assert that I have a reasonable amount of life experience and spiritual experience. And I've been with three teachers, Amrita Sai and a woman named Majaya Bhagavate, who was Ram Das's guru as well. And I've put, I think I've relegated gurus now to their appropriate place with the fall of enlightened next and that I learned as much, I got as enlightened by in the three years after it fell as I did in the 12 years I was involved with it. Um, but I think we have to be humble. I mean, humanity's at a critical point and in a way we're just getting started. So I would say as, as much as we know and as far as we've come, I think we have to be very humble. As much as I know about all of this, I, I think I could be very helpful in helping inst in a conversation relative to instituting integral medicine in this world. But when I look at the world's most pressing problems, when it comes to economics and politics and social justice, I don't really have those answers. I mean, I understand directions of things, but I have no training in them. So I think we really, you know, all need each other and each other's competencies. And yeah, I mean, we can, you know, the spiritual experience is profound, but it doesn't guarantee any that we won't make a terrible mess. <laughs> you are seems to me a very autobiographical kind of guy i've heard a whole bunch of life stories in this discussion and the book has 
a lot of really interesting anecdotes. I, you know, I enjoyed your brief little conditioned encounter with BF Skinner. That was oh, yeah. entertaining. Uh, there's some discussion about your own spiritual and meditative life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you this phrase about Lonnie Jarrett could die. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, stuck with me. And it's partly because they're in, I think the early nineties, there was a Dutch electronic band called LA style. And they had a song called James Brown is dead. And they would just repeat this, and then the techno music would play. Mm-hmm. I hear Lonnie Jarrett could die in that same voice, so then the music plays in my head now. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's, it's quite entertaining. Um, I just wanted to mention that, share something autobiographical about myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, the, well, it's interesting. You know, I so I won't discount the average amount of megalomania <laughs> that, that, that we have. But I, I, try, I try to root that, look, I'm trying to take responsibility for it. This is my process. And this is my, my deepening perspective on Chinese medicine. The title of the book is very self-conscious. Deepening in, infers a process. Perspective infers that it's just a perspective. I'm elaborating a perspective and it's not the only perspective I'm aware of or use. But somebody, you know, I think that William James took the position in elaborating pragmatism that it wasn't an absolute principle, but he was going to explicate it as an absolute principle because someone had to do it. And when you, when you elaborate an absolute principle, then you can see that's the only way you can really see its weaknesses and strengths. So I'm trying to root this all, of course, as a clinician, I have to talk about my life experience when I'm doing case studies. And also I'm trying to place myself with these more personal revelations in terms of what my life process has been in the time I was having them subject to the social forces. Well, what you referred to was a week before I, you know, I met Andrew and the first time I heard him talk, I thought he was an, I hated him. I really, really didn't like him. His community moved here. Kripalu had fallen apart because Amrit Desai had slept with all these women. I had run a Taekwondo school at Kripalu for 17 years. Kripalu sold off a property and Andrew's community moved in and many of his senior students came to me for treatment and it took them five, six years to get me to a retreat. And I went on this it wasn't even a retreat. He, on the 15th anniversary of his awakening, he gave a two hour talk to the public and I went and I couldn't stand him. And I had this dream that two Hasidic Jews, I walked into a restaurant and one handed me their phone and I was very impressed in their dream that someone could call and say, there's a guy walking in front of you now, (laughs) hand him the phone. And I said, hello. And he said, Lonnie Jarrett, this is Andrew Cohen. I'm giving a week long, a weekend retreat and I want you there. And in the dream, I said, yes, sir. A week before that retreat, I was meditating with my wife and I heard the words, Lonnie Jarrett could die. And the clouds parted and I saw the sun and I immediately brought myself out of it. And I just said, I saw the possibility of my own death. And Andrew talked for two hours about this or that. He said, let's meditate for a few minutes. I closed my eyes. I heard Lonnie Jarrett could die. And then I heard the word forever and an atom bomb went off and nothing's ever been the same. 
when Andrew told me the community was, he called me up at 11 o'clock one night and I went to his house and he told me what happened. And he said, you know, the community is going to fall apart. And a voice in my head just said, he's going to need a friend. And I felt I had drawn a real boundary. I didn't give up my house, my family. I had drawn a real boundary with Andrew and the community. I went deeply into the teachings and the practice. I was over there six, seven days a week for 12 years. I went on 19 retreats, but I was, but I knew enough from my previous two experience with teachers to draw a boundary. And the life work that I was doing was important to me. Anyway, I've stuck, I, this voice went in my head and said, he's gonna need a friend. And I felt I owed him so much for the transmission I had got. And we've, we've uh, stayed good friends and we talk regularly and very often about music and jazz. And we go see lots of shows together when he's stateside. Most of the nonsense that happened in that community happened before I got there. I got there 2001 at the time. The first time I saw Andrew talk was when, the commun when that community had decided to go public. And so they were changing all their behaviors. So I saw very little of that. Anyway, um, yes, yeah, so, so I had a strong spiritual experience and many, many since. And now to quote someone I read, I think it was Archimedes Dionysus, a Greek Orthodox priest in his 90s, but I can't remember if it was him. But someone I read at some point, it was a, a Christian who had, in his 80s or 90s and could celibate his whole life and really lived that lifestyle. And he said, you know, after the fireworks stop, spiritual experience mostly comes in the form of daily humiliation <laughs> in terms of all the ways we see how we're not what it is we've woken up to. Absolutely and I, praised. Yeah. So anyway, so. Drawing boundaries, which you mentioned a moment ago, is really an interesting area of study. Mm -hmm. To what degree is it uh, an experientially developed skill, if we're lucky? Mm -hmm. And to what degree is it a more or less spontaneous process if our psychoorganism is healthy and intact? It's a fantastic question, and that's so deep. So, of course, we can, we can reference the cognitive psychologists, Madarana and, and Varela. Are you familiar with them? Mm -hmm. And they're the champions in the early seven, late 60s, early 70s of the theory of autopoiesis. And the notion that cognition arises in the interface between self and other as the organism makes the distinction between interior, exterior, self and other. And we can understand that in, in Chinese medicine, we see that as immunity, largely the result of the functions of the fire and metal, which are the heart, and the organs associated with the heart, the small intestine, the pericardium, and most importantly, the three heater, which is like the body's thermostat. You can think of that as the Great Wall of China. And the lungs and the colon. So the lungs and the fire govern what's called Wei Qi, protective Qi, which creates the interface between self and other. And when that's healthfully functioning, 
we have this fluid boundary that acts as a filter that only admits into us what is congruent with true self and keeps out of us everything that could be harmful and detrimental. So when something's in your lungs and your colon, it's not in you. It's only in you when it's gone through the membrane into the bloodstream. Otherwise, you're just gonna exhale it in the next breath or it's gonna pass out as feces and not be assimilated. So the functions of the lungs and the colon are, are membranes that draw the distinction between self and other, only admitting the lungs admit um, light in the form of air and the colon admits light in the form of minerals. So the lungs are the connection to heavenly chi and the colon is the connection to earthly chi. What is, what is gold? What are, what are gold? Gold comes from stars that have exploded. Minerals come from stars that have exploded. It's their light, their light concretized within the earth that the colon is absorbing. So the upside of this immunity is the capacity to admit quality and essence and light into our lives while keeping out what's detrimental. And the downside when there's dysfunction in the quality of drawing this boundary is pride. And pride is the ego's way of creating, maintain, creating and maintain, sustaining the illusion of being separate and superior. So this is how I, so I, I, so I think there are healthy boundaries at every stage of development. What's healthy, what's a healthy boundary for um, someone for three or four or five or six year olds at a magic stage of development is different than a healthy boundary. You know, what's healthy for a two year old is initially is no boundary. What's healthy for a two-year-old is to push with unrepressed libido where the whole body's an erogenous zone in every direction. I want this, I want, and th then it has to meet the force of um, socialization from the amber mean to be raised in a healthy way. So a healthy boundary at amber is everybody who believes what my collective believes and behaves the way my collective behaves is self and everyone who believes in a different creation myth or behaves differently is other. That's not unhealthy at an amber stage of development. And of course, as we go up the, the spiral, um, by the time we get to the culmination of self-authorship, complete the identity project, as Washburn would call the identity project, by the time we complete this, the boundary begins to break down in a healthy way where we have a real transcendence into the transpersonal that is post-complexity, not, not as young and Neumann thought into a pre-personal complexity. If you look at what Neumann thought the transpersonal was, it was, it was all infantile. Every use of, of that kind of language by Neumann always was a regression into the unconscious. I think we have this simplicity before complexity and a simplicity after complexity. 
And the complexity I'm talking about is the ego, the superego, and, and the um, self-authoring of the self. And on the other side of this, I think the boundaries start to break down between interior and exterior self and other, where there is this capacity for authentic intersubjectivity, deep listening, and where the, the mystery behind it all begins to emerge as a creative force within us, consciously related to. And this is what Jung and Neumann would have called, you know, a healthy relation, and Washburn, who is totally guilty of the pre-trans fallacy, but his book I think is still tremendous. And he makes many good points in it. I, I think this is what they would talk about, a healthy relationship between the conscious and the unconscious. But I would see that explosion, that alchemy of sending the Shen, the spirit down into the kidneys, down into the depth, um, transcending the regression of rationality to let the unconscious really percolate into awareness. I think that alchemy creates an explosion where we can really move into a post-rational, post-postmodern, even post-integral um, stage of knowing. And in, in terms of my own development, I think I'm very much at the edge of having sort of a, a robust integral stage of development with at least probably from the knee down of one leg into the transpersonal <laughs> stages. I'm, I'm comfort, I'm, I, I have a degree of, uh, a real degree of comfort there, but it's, it's, it's a mystery to me what it really means to begin to solidify at those stages. There are people like uh, Terry O'Fallon who map out these stages um, post into post what I call post, po what Ken calls integral post that. And I think it works very interesting, but I also have an awful lot of questions about it. And I, just to be honest, I, you know, I start out my book saying the, the medicine that I'm outlining in this book isn't a project we're going to see completed in my lifetime, which is inspiring and also awesome. It's humbling and it's awesome. And I think there are so, so few people really stabilized at Integral that personally I've, I, I have an intuition of, I have experience of what it means to be in a, like in Leidenex at its best on retreats or when we were really cooking with intersubjectivity. I think we were really stepping across the line from high turquoise into beginning what we call indigo but I, that's as far as it got. And I, I just think we have a lot of humility, even saying that we're stabilized at integral. I mean, you know, we're, who, who knows? We've got some, some very promising elements at the moment, but undoubtedly our notion of the higher stages is gonna have to be uh, rethought going forward over the next 50 or 100 years, because we just don't have much evidence. We have so few people who've combined any amount of real transcendental intelligence with a substantial and well thought out critique of what's going on for them. So our, our you know, our sample size is just so small. I'm sure that's an area which will look dramatically different 
in a hundred years. Yes. Whereas the stuff we have a lot of data about historically and evolutionarily already, that'll probably look pretty consistent going forward. We're still desperately trying to institute some of the prime virtues that were just put in the constitution of the United States 250 <laughs> years ago. And I mean, we don't even have racial justice. We're just really starting to grapple again in a serious way with um, just racial justice and social justice, the foundations of which all were, were cognitively understood 250 years ago. So I, I, I'm very suspicious of anything that cl claims stages of development much beyond integral. Anyway, anyway and you know, where are, where are the, I wanna see the political, social, economic and legal systems that those people are generating that actually work in the world. And then I'll be convinced that of what it looks like. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right, right now, I think it's a lot of higher state experience and intuition and a, a sort of probing into what it could be. But beyond that, um, even, you know, Aurobindo, who I loved, spoke in a really mythic language, bringing down supermind is, is you know, it's, it's a mythic we're a supermind, it's up there. It's very engaging and can be very inspirational to speak in those terms, but I think it also does put a limit on the kinds of new thoughts we can have about the actual dynamics of these processes. I'm just relieved to have Joe Biden and Kamala Harris being sworn in 30 minutes from now, hoping, <laughs> hoping we can take another few steps forward in instituting, you know, a little more social justice and environmental and economic justice and a just, just a step to rational at this point is welcome relief. <laughs> I'm curious about your impression of elements because um, the Greeks and a lot of uh, American Indians think in terms of four elements, you know, sometimes with a central root or, or combining fifth element, but Chinese have these five fairly distinct elemental forces. Mm -hmm. um, are these just different languages and different approaches? Is there something you think the four element people are leaving out that Chinese medicine includes? No, no Chinese medicine. There are just different ways of the five. The five elements have been depicted differently over history. The earliest representations are earth at the center with the four seasons revolving around them. But understand the, ele the elements are only in their most superficial aspects, physical things. And they're not even really forces. They're just qualities of movement and expression. They're qualities of movement and expression. It's just the light cycle. So water is just the winter solstice when the sun is lowest in the sky and you have the most dark. And exactly at that moment of the greatest darkness, you have the rebirth of the light so the water element is about the seed and potential and the infinite ocean and drawing deep into the interior of the self, genetic and ancestral capacity. The spring equinox is about the rising of rising force, 
and everything turns green and you have vision planning, decision-making, strategizing, judgment, anger, frustration, creativity, and a person's capacity to respond creatively to blocks of planning and decision-making with perspective. And you have thunder and lightning storms and chaotic movements, so you have wind. So external wind is when things are blowing around and internal wind is when you're having an epileptic seizure or a stroke or your muscles twitching or you just have a headache. And then you have the, winter, the summer solstice with the sun highest in the sky, which is the quality of sentience and the imperial quality of the heart on the throne, the solar ego. And you have hearts, circulation, sexuality, protection, boundary, intimacy, trust, betrayal, and all these, the warmth and heat. And then you have late summer where, where nothing is growing anymore, but the fields are full. Nothing is growing, but nothing's dying. So the fields are filled with corn and they're filled with weed and everything's abundant. And that's the stomach and the spleen and the digestive system. And everything is humid and damp. And dampness externally is, you know, humidity and internally it's phlegm and fat and phlegm in the lungs and lipomas and feeling a heavy head and repetitive thought and obsessive thought. And then the fall equinox, metal element, lung and colon is when everything dies. So it's about longing and grief, quality taking in receptivity, letting go, and drawing a healthy distinction between what has value and what has lost value. And these are functional movements with physical equivalence. So when you hear a Chinese, so in practicing Chinese medicine saying the heart, well, the heart, the liver, the kidney are physical things that you can take out and you weigh. And they have all the attributes that any cardiologist or nephrologist would attribute to them. They have all those physical attributes more greatly elaborated in the upper right quadrant by Western medicine, but Chinese medicine wouldn't deny any of them. But when we say kidney, we don't just mean your physical kidney. We mean your, the strength of your genetic potential, your relationship to ancestry, the soul level issues you brought with you into the incarnation, the relative strength and quality and direction of your will and how you exert it, either to contemplate internally or to expend resources externally from material gain in the world, the strength of the bones, the strength of the nervous system, the strength of the mind, all of that is kidney. The liver is not just physical liver, it's a person's capacity to cognize complexity. The liver has 500 enzymatic reactions. The lungs just do a couple of things. The colon does a couple of things. The kidney, the, the liver does 500 things. So you go to sleep at night and you lay laterally and all the blood flows into the liver. And when the liver detoxifies your blood, you, you experience that as dreaming. So the Chinese language of physiology is always a physical, a subtle meaning psyche and soul and a very subtle meaning spirit. The language is always referring simultaneously to causality and expression in all these dimensions of the self simultaneously. 
A uh, number of times in the book, uh, you say something like, we can only heal what we're willing to face. Right. Uh, and that's a, you know, it seems like a good general rule and it sort of brings together physiology and psychotherapy and meditation and spirituality into a single concept. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how you think about how true that statement might be, because are there things we can't face, things that might need to be healed that just aren't the kind of thing that can come up to be faced? They're not available to consciousness in that sense. And aren't there ways in which I could get healed without noticing, without facing anything? Well, of course that's true. And so, so I think what I really say is that what we face, we can, what we're willing to face, we can change. And so the essence of my book is, you know, I state this explicitly at least two or three times in the book, is we're trying to help people take responsibility for every dimension of the self that can be taken responsibility for. But this gets perverted by new age thinking into thinking that if I have any physical, psychological, emotional problem, if I'm not selling lots of soap, it must be I need an attitude adjustment. So you see all of these multi-level marketing things that bring people into an intersubjective sort of at the level of landmark education, where they go get a Tony Robbins figure in front of the room and by the end of the weekend, they're charged that I can sell a lot of soap and make the diamond tear and the checks will come to my mailbox. And it's superstitious. I was at a Taoist conference speaking and the woman hosting the conference for three days would get up every 40 minutes and say, remember, everything happens for a reason. And I just really wanted to stand up and say, would you tell us what it is? <laughs> because I, I sure, well, it may, but we're never going to know. And as you say, look, there are different dimensions to the unconscious. There's a ground or unconscious, which is all the things that are unconscious that just haven't manifested yet. There's an archaic unconscious, which is, you know, what does it mean to be me having come from a big bang over 15 billion years and having, you know, 1400, you know, 14 billion years of evolution that I, I where I was a rock. <laughs> so, you know, people are afraid of snakes and they're afraid of spiders, not because they were ever bit by a snake or a spider, but because for millions of years we lived in caves and our only weapon was a pointed stick and we didn't even have sleeping bags. So there's, there's this content. So none of that content is repressed. It's unconscious, but it's not repressed. But we have a repressed unconscious and we can face. So when I'm making that statement about facing what we need to face, I'm talking about working with shadow in the repressed unconscious. And the, of course, we have a, an embedded unconscious, which is the eyes we're seeing through now. And from an integral point of view, if we have integrity, we always want to assume that there's a lot we're not seeing. So we're always interested in other people's perspectives. And then there's an emergent unconscious, which is the future self calling through our conscience, our imminent self. And to the degree we won't face some aspect of our repressed past, we're also denying access, 
access to a more wholesome future. And when I'm making that statement, I'm really talking about facing what we need to face in terms of accessible shadow for the sake of embrace a deeper and higher and wider embrace of life and the emergence of a, a more evolved self. But there's only, you know, it's total new age superstition to think if only so-and-so was spiritually aligned, they wouldn't have type one diabetes. It, among people who you've encountered or even treated who are fairly stable, integrative or meta level thinkers, or that's mm -hmm. how they see the world, mm -hmm. are the kinds of problems they have from a TCM perspective equally diverse to the general population or are there certain trends? Do you see any particular issues that are recurrent in that group? A person, you know, the, I mean, you know, obviously, I mean, I understand that Ken has health problems. I don't know all the details, but apparently it's an autoimmune condition. And I've never met Ken personally. We've, we've exchanged some emails and I, I've read, I feel like I know him the same way. I feel like I have an intimate relationship with John Lennon because I've read 40 of Ken's books and watched a hundred podcasts. And, but I mean, you know, I mean, Ken's a reasonably integrally developed guy, I think most people would say. And um, that's not an, you know, um, Ramana Maharshi died, I think of, of cancer or diabetes. Uh, Bapaji, who was Amrita Sai's teacher was at least in terms of state development, very highly evolved. You know, last, I don't think he spoke the last 13 years of his life. In terms of like Vedantic attainment, he was the real deal and um, died of diabetes. I mean, I so when we talk about what is health, we have this sort of new age ideal that if I'm spiritually aligned and I do practice and I eat the right diet and all, my house is in order, I'll have great sex, look really good in spandex, sell a lot of Lemon Lulu stuff on Instagram, and my kids will all get into great colleges and be really bright, and, and everyone's going to be healthy and everything's going to be okay. And it's just materialism. <clears throat> I don't, I am not sure. So I want to embrace, I don't want to embrace any inherent sense of limitation but I have a suspicion there's no amount of spiritual development or intellectual or soul level development <clears throat> that is going to make the vehicle of the body perfect. And, you know, maybe we'll be able to do that with nanotechnology and recombinant DNA. I, you know, I don't, I, maybe. <laughs> and, and that brings up a whole other <laughs> question of what health is. So, so I, I went on stage in Germany in front of 600 acupuncturists and an Asian practitioner had got up and just spent 30 minutes talking about, or 45 minutes talking about how he could make anyone's physical pain disappear in 30 seconds with one needle. And this was just weeks after George Bush had won his first election in Rothenburg, Germany. And I got up and said, you know, Dick Cheney is my patient. I was making this up. 
And I said, he, he came in last week and he said he really wanted to push the button, but that it was really hurting right here. <laughs> and I put in a needle and he said, that's incredible. I feel fantastic. I'm going to go out and fulfill my destiny. And I said, would you like to reschedule? He said, there won't be any need. <laughs> so the body is an imperfect vehicle. I'm, and I suspect it always will be. And I'm not sure that it shouldn't be. And, the, you know, having a limited time on earth does create a certain amount of evolutionary tension if we're paying <laughs> any attention at all. There is, there's some stuff on chakras in this book. Mm -hmm. uh, I love chakras. Um, you treat them the way Ken tends to do as stages. I tend to treat them as lines of development. But the interesting thing is... I wouldn't disagree with you. They're not Chinese. Is right. One, right. And so, you know, to what degree is this traditional Chinese medicine, what you're looking at, and to what degree is... Yeah, that's a good thing to call it because that's a good historical important part of it. But really, it's the higher level folk medicine of the whole world. Well, it's not just folk. I mean, we started in folk. We started in magic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, magic is really before folk. Magic is when you're just under the influence of archetypes. Folk is when you're starting to sanitize the archetypes. And... Um, make put a more human face on the archetypes the um the big criticism of my work since i've been writing is this isn't chinese medicine and i've always said okay <laughs> i've i've never really had it so i you know i addressed this in my introduction that i'm not happy with the title of my book if, if the size of words and space wasn't an issue and ergonomics weren't an issue, I'd have titled it Integral Evolutionary and Spiritual. I would have titled it Catalyzing Emergence, Integral Evolutionary and Spiritual Perspectives on Chinese Medicine. Chinese Medicine is a world medicine. It left, first of all, if you call it Chinese Medicine, the original texts were probably written in what is now Korea, which at the time was China. And if you call it Chinese medicine, you know, the Japanese acupuncturists have their own association. The Chinese acupuncturists have their own association. The Vietnamese acupuncturists have their own association. And the, the, the you know, Americans of different colors have their own association. And um, if you call it Chinese medicine to anyone in Korea or Vietnam or Japan, they're gonna take ethnocentric um, exception to this, it's a world, it's become a world medicine. And, I, and I'm bringing that to it. And that's part of why it's kind of biographical is I'm trying to be transparent and explicate my process. I, I've spent many years learning to read um, Chinese and studying the Chinese language. I'm, I'm not fluent with classical Chinese, but I deeply understand the philosophical and medical language. And I understand the quality of Chinese language and the quality of the Chinese mind um, fairly deeply. And if you just look at a paragraph of English or any Romance language and a paragraph of Chinese, you know that these are two different worldviews. You don't have to know anything about linguistics. And we know that language is congruent with the emergence of mind 
the emergence of cognition. And, and language is one of the chief ways we can assess anybody. Language and behavior are the two ways we can assess worldview. So they're really quite complementary, And I call it Chinese medicine, really honestly, out of deference to the medical classics in China. But we could call it East Asian medicine for a wider embrace. But most, all my teachers were English. I did study with my teacher's teacher, John Chen, died about 15, well, 17, 18 years ago in, at about 93 years of age. My current teacher is 96. And I studied with my teacher's teacher. And he was a window into ancient China. And it's, it's just become a world, it's become a world medicine. It's gone all over the world. And I think, see, here's the thing. I will make the case that the higher aspects of medicine and what we call integral med, real integral medicine is only possible in the context of freedom. Real, real freedom, the kind of freedoms the US constitution provides, idealized. I mean, we don't live in a perfectly free society, especially if you're a person of color, but we have this ideal. And I would say that that exterior social condition has to be met so that she is relatively unconstrained and a person has the, has the choice. A person has a lot, the capacity to live a life of dignity free from fear to actually attain self-authorship and the transcendence of self-authorship. And when a person has that capacity, then, then integral medicine really begins to work at that level and at that stage of development. Do you feel personally close to the classical healers, sages of the Orient? Do you see yourself in that world a little bit? You know, I mean, when I was doing Taekwondo and I was 22 years old, I had like a Bruce Lee jacket that he would have worn and enter the jacket, enter <laughs> the dragon, the, the blue jacket with the, the buttons and the roll up cuffs. And I would wear Kung Fu shoes. That was about a year. The shoes don't last when you, I mean, they're just made of cotton. So you kick anything with them and they break in three minutes. And, um, you know, again, this was something that when I, I mean, to be honest with you, when I was 13 and I was reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the I Ching and Lao Tzu, I, I knew they were way the, way the hell beyond me, but I was so deeply inspired by them. And at the same time, I began, you know, taking entheogens. And I had read varieties, by the time of, I was 14, I'd read varieties of religious experience. And I was reading, you know, um, a lot of the, the Bhagavad Gita and the Vedas, which the Hare Krishnas would, end, would give me when I'd sneak down to Greenwich Village, tell my parents I was going to the mall and I'd go into New York down to Greenwich Village and the Hare Krishnas would give me these books. Anyway, 
I, I've always looked at medicine. My interest has always been from the, the standpoint of interest in consciousness and the nature of consciousness. I have self-admittedly a real upper left bias, but I'm, you know, I've mentioned social justice here many times. I mean, I really do think I take an integral view and look, I've published and I've had my work published in the proceedings of the National Academy of Science and Jour Journal of Embryology and Experimental Morphology. I, I think I've got the quadrants pretty flushed out, but ultimately it's the upper left contemplative has, has been my way forward with practices and entheogens and philosophically, but I recognize that that bias in myself. So that, that's been my interest in medicine all along. I went into psychology, worked at a mental hospital for a year, one of the last mental hospitals still open in America when I was 20, 19 years old, 20 years old. It was very formative for me, but I went into neurobiology because I wanted the hard answers. And I was working in, with an electron microscope microscope one day inside the brain of a Mexican salamander, an axolotl at about a 60, 70,000 magnification. And I got physically lost in the brain and I couldn't find my way back to the structure I wanted to photograph. And I realized, my God, I'm as disoriented as if I was driving in my car and lost. But I'm lost in actually a few angstrom of, of salamander's brain. And then it hit me, there's no consciousness here. I'm just looking at a thing. It's just a surface. And then I realized neuroscience had nothing to do with consciousness. It was all that cells and cellular connections and all the electrical potentials you could measure were just things. And that hit me really hard. And at the same time, I took my first 10 week course in Chinese medicine and a bomb went off and I said, I'm gonna do this the rest of my, this is everything I haven't learned. It's everything I haven't known. And now I feel like, frankly, I think I brought the two together. I think this book really does convey a really authentic embodied integral approach. And I'm just interested in what's next. And for me, that's good. that includes, uh, I mean, Michael, by the end of my life, I'd like to be able to take a guitar solo through Giant Steps by Coltrane <laughs> and be able to navigate that. I'm working really hard on, on um, jazz guitar. Beautiful. Okay, two final questions. This is what I've still got in the back of my mind. Mm -hmm. First is, what's the nature of uprightness? Mm -hmm. And the second is, in traditional models of cosmic hierarchy, it tends to go atoms, molecules, cells, bodies. To what degree ought we to consider organs to be a legitimate layer of holon? Sure. Can, can, can we do the first one and then you'll remind me of the second one if I don't Absolutely. remember? Okay. So in terms of uprightness, the Chinese have this character... Zheng, Z-H-E-N-G. And it depicts heaven and earth. So two parallel lines, which is the Chinese number two, and then a line connecting them, and then a line going out halfway. 
And it means going, going to the distant shore without stopping halfway. So uprightness is the virtue of going all the way without getting caught in the intermediaries, intermediate zone. And the Bodhisattva vow says, may I be the doctor and the medicine, may I be the boat and the bridge to carry the wounded and suffering to the distant shore. And we can tend to look at distant shore, getting to the distant shore as a process, but the only time one can ever do it is right now because there's only one moment. Spiritual revelation shows us that space is infinite and there's only one point in space and time is infinite and there's only one moment of time. And who we are is that infinite process and that infinite distance localized in that one point of space and time. And there's only ever this moment. So all we have is right now. And, and I think this has very much to do with Gebser's view of a perspectivity. I don't understand a perspectivity in the postmodern sense of just every point of view being equal and not, you know, a perspectival madness, as Ken might point to. I understand it more in, in terms of this, this just experience of this mystery and of light translucing origin of, and of being able to have the mind functioning, but the mind functioning as an object in awareness so that we're not contained in it. Rather, it is a structure in consciousness and that we can actually act from and interact with each other from an emergent truth that after the fact we can ask questions about and rationalize and come to know. Like Miles Davis said, I'll play it first and then explain it to you later. And so uprightness, I think really, uprightness is this evolutionary tension. This, the Chinese talk about it as the alignment of the human between heaven and earth. So the heart is aligned with the kidneys internally. In using will to catalyze communication, to open a channel. So through the exercise of will, we stop repressing so that consciousness can interact with the unconscious. And, and at that point where in creative engagement, we're not just, Taoism was all about merging with. This merging with is, a first step, but there's this place at which we're in total dynamic creative engagement with. Ken talks about it as being on a train, racing full speed ahead, stoking the furnace, and at the same time, hanging off the front and laying down tracks. And to me, that has this quality of uprightness. The uprightness has to be rooted in emptiness the view of the constructed nature of all that emerges from emptiness. And yet we, we come to realize in the deepest aspect of who we are, that the fact that something's constructed doesn't mean it isn't just as real. So the Chinese had this notion, the Asians have this notion that that which is unchanging is what's real and everything else is ephemeral. But the eros, the creative impulse, consciousness, 
as consciousness, consciousness manifesting as Eros is also unchanging. It's just the relentless push forward. And that being in touch, rooted in emptiness and yet um, holding oneself in a way that the creative, um, the creativity expresses itself through the body, the mind, the psyche, the soul, the spirit, through the brightness in the eyes and through the integrity of action in the world. I, I see that as uprightness. Thank you. And so the that, other question, yeah, just to prompt you, if you need it, you may not. Yeah, yeah. Um, to what degree should we consider organs to be holons? And is the organ layer a significant layer in the developmental holarchy of the cosmos? Because most people jump right from cell to body when they talk about it. Well, sure. I mean, you go from, you can go from, you know, energy to light to matter to organelles to a single cell to organ systems to organs and then to organ systems. So, you know, you get the stomach, you get the spleen, but then you have the digestive system. And then you have systems of systems, which are psychoneuroimmunology. And I think it's totally reasonable to put the organ as a whole system. But remember again, in Chinese medicine, an organ has a four quadrant expression. So, when we talk about the liver, we talk about the capacity for taking perspective, which consciously, which is upper left. We have the liver itself, which we can weigh, which is upper right. But in, in society, we have the general. In culture, we have the general. So the heart is responsible for recognizing the best qualities in every minister and appointing them to posts where their natural gifts can be ex expressed, but the liver's job is to determine to what degree each person is living up to that and to judge, you see? So the liver is the judge, establishes hierarchy through making hierarchical discernments through judging. The liver is responsible for hierarchy. But we can also see in society, there's a whole set of laws, rules and regulations that uphold the place of the general and uphold the place of the emperor. So the liver exists in all these quadrants. Um, so, so when we talk about an organ in Chinese medicine, we're always talking about it in a, in a gross, a subtle, and a very subtle way. You're using the term organ more in terms of a physical organ. And of course, yes, I think we would go from single cells to organs to organ systems. Yeah, that's nice. I, you know, I bring it up because when we're thinking about how to make higher states and higher stages and higher systems more embodied in the world, mm -hmm. I think we need to be able to hit all those levels in order to do that. And like, it seems to be a corollary to what you're saying is we have to bring in medicine and bring in the body in order to give actualization to these higher concepts. And the, our tendency to not think about the organs when we're discussing philosophy in the cosmos, it might be symptomatic of, of our slight unwillingness to really bring it into embodiment. Yeah, well, the Chinese don't do that. They don't leave them out. <laughs> the The... There's a point on the stomach channel called heavenly pivot, 
right next to the, about three inches lateral to the belly button. And that's also their name for the central star in the Big Dipper. I mean, the whole Chinese acupuncture point and meridial system is literally mapping culture and cosmos onto the body, onto its exterior and understanding the interior relationships of all the organs structurally, physically, psychologically in the soul and in, in terms of spirit as an, as an inner collective. I mean, the Chinese defined physiology as a physiology of an inner collective 500 BC, at least from a, at the furthest edge, uh, mythic rational to rational point of view. But remember they had hired, those were the greatest geniuses in the civilization. And they no doubt had inspirations of postmodern egalitarianism. And if you can just read that in Chuang Tzu when he talks about the mind of the sage needs its free and easy wanderings. He says, he concludes his book, words have meaning, but once you have lost, once you have grasped the words, you can forget the meanings. Where can I find one who has forgotten the meaning of words so that I can have a word with him? It's far out, man. <laughs> it really is. He was, I think the first example of somebody using language like Shakespeare and Dylan later went on to use it. This has been terrific, Lonnie. I've had a really nice time. There's so much richness here. I'm sure we could, you know, go at it for many more hours. But it, it's it's fabulous. I've I've really really appreciated the time. Great conversation. And again, it's it's wonderful getting to know you and and putting a face on all those posts. And um, yeah, just great. Thanks yeah. so much. Yeah.